How did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with New Radio Media, and we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. We have someone new in our phone booth today. That's Mike. Probably not too much time to get through to him today. We have a very, very busy show. I'm just going to ask Tony, is there a reason why it sounds a little, a little funny? Maybe they played with the sounds? Oh, none. We're good? Yeah, we should be good. All right, so I raised this up, so now I hear it better. Okay, perfect. So we, so again, if you want to try to get through to Mike, don't know if there's time to get through today, but it's 844-999-9249, or you can email the show at Let's Talk Torah, no apostrophes, Let's Talk Torah at gmail.com. And we have coming up in the second segment a fantastic guest. Her name is Rachel Wasserman. She's the executive director of the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta. And we're going to talk with her about human trafficking right on time for the Super Bowl. And as I also found out, I, or she'll correct me, I'm sure, but I believe tomorrow is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day. Now, we, we set the appointment two months ago. I didn't know that there was a National Awareness Day for Human Trafficking, but it happens to be tomorrow, so you couldn't get better timing. And not only that, when we talk about this week's Torah portion, we're going to find out it fits even better. So it's unbelievable. we got to talk about the final three plagues. we got locusts, we got darkness, and we got the plague of the firstborn, meaning the death of the firstborn. we got to talk about the Jewish people going to freedom. That will be our connection, of course, into freedom and slavery and human trafficking. And perhaps we'll get into little Passover sacrifices. And, of course, as always, Rabbi Yonason Goldson will share some fantastic thoughts at the end of the show. Let's get into this week's Torah portion, though. So, interesting, over the last couple days, I've had almost the same conversation uh, about slavery and freedom and let's think about it for a second. We talked about plagues last week, blood and frogs, and there was wild animals. And during some of those plagues, the Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, get rid of this plague. Go pray to God, get rid of the plague, and I'll let you go free. So let's think for a second. If I'm Moses and Pharaoh says, I- I- I'm begging you, get rid of this plague, I can't handle it. If I'm Moses, I say, Pharaoh, no problem. We're going to pack up our bags. We're going to load up our animals. We're going to march out of Egypt. You're not going to bother us because you're in the middle of fighting off this plague. When we get out, we will gladly, or God will gladly put an end to the plague. It's been nice knowing you. We've been here a couple hundred years. Um, But uh, we're done. That would seem to be what Moses should have said in bargaining, right? If I'm bargaining with somebody and I'm the guy that's got all the chips, so why would I go ahead and, and, uh, and just give in to whatever the other side wants? He has, he, Pharaoh has no bargaining power. He wants to get rid of the plague. He's begging me to pray to get rid of it. 
And all I want is to let, he's got to let the Jewish people go. That's the question. This week's Torah portion is even better. And this week's Torah portion is a plague of darkness, which interesting, I was with a friend yesterday, two days ago, and he didn't even know about the plague of darkness. Just a quick, uh, darkness was just a, a thick, a thick blackness. You, you couldn't see anything. There's a, I went there once, there's a science center in New Jersey, and I guess it's for like seeing and hearing and tasting and touching. So they have the darkness room, and there's a big room, and then in the room there's like these tunnels that you crawl into, and it's, however they set it up, it is completely black. There's no light that gets in at all. And they warn you beforehand that if you can't handle it, you have to yell out, I'm scared, or please turn on the lights, and they'll turn on the lights and take you out and continue for those who can handle it. So this darkness is so intense. You can't see. You're not moving. First of all, some, for part of the plague, you couldn't move. And anyways, you can't see. You're not moving. You're petrified of this darkness. So, but the Jewish people had light. So if I'm Moses, I tell everybody, pack your bags. The Egyptians can't see, they can't move, and we're going to mosey on out of the country, and end of story. So the answer is, and that's really the whole concept of freedom, it's not good enough that we're escaped slaves. We do not want to be escaped slaves where forever the Egyptians and the pharaohs are saying, yeah, you really are slaves, you ran away, we really own you. God does not want any part of that. We are not leaving Egypt until we are completely free. The Pharaoh, we're slaves to the Pharaoh, to Paro. So when we are freed, then we're going to go. Not beforehand. And now there's one more um, just to think about for a second. What about during the plague? So let the Pharaoh free us during the plague and uh, then we'll take away the plague and we'll leave. No big deal. And I was, forget about walking out of the country. Because then we're called slaves. We'll be called escaped slaves. So God doesn't want us to have that stigma. Fine. No problem. So free us right now. Free us now. The plague will end. So it's like a simultaneous, right? Hand off. We're all happy. We'll leave. We're free. Everyone's good to go. There's also a problem. Because th- that's real coercion, right? And there's no court would accept the fact that you uh, freed your slave because somebody had a gun to your head. That's, like, ridiculous. So it's not a real freedom. So therefore, by each and every plague, the plague has to end. After the plague ends, so we're technically not twisting the Pharaoh's arm anymore. When we get to that point, then the Pharaoh can say, free to go or not free to go. So for the first nine plagues... The Pharaoh keeps saying, you are not free to go, till after the final plague, then he can't handle it anymore, then he frees us, now we're free. We are no longer slaves. Now, we're free, we leave Egypt, but now we become God's people, right? Now we accept his Torah, we accept to be his people, so technically we're slaves to God, but it would seem to be much better to be a slave to God than a slave to a person, because nobody wants to be a slave to a person, right? Our country went through that. Many countries went through that. That's ancient history. But now, now we're trying to find a way to free the Jewish people. And again, just to just to crystallize it, uh, God does not want us to have a stigma of of escaped slaves. So we will not leave the country, 
not during a plague, not after a plague, until Pharaoh says you are all free to go. Till that happens, we stay put. So that uh, takes care of that question that's uh, come up, really, I, I don't know, two, two, three times with people I study with, not including my class, we talked about it. So that's it. That's our slavery issue, and we're going to talk much more about human trafficking and that kind of slavery, and it's terrible, And uh, but we're going to learn all about it because I myself, uh, I'm a little clueless about how uh, that human trafficking works and what happens and how they manage to get away with it and how come there's no, uh, there's no I don't want to say there's no police looking out for it, but it just seems people can get away with it. That's really going to be with, uh, with Rachel Wasserman in our next segment. Okay, so let's back up. So we are up to plague number eight. Plague number eight is the plague of locusts. You don't know what a locust is, a grasshopper. They, they travel in swarms, and farmers always know that when they attack, it destroys the crop completely. And so Moses now comes into Pharaoh and says, okay, next plague is coming, and that plague is a plague of locusts going to devour all your food. Now, for those who are paying attention, in last week's Torah portion, which we didn't have time for, there was the plague of hail. Now, the plague of hail also destroyed all the crops. So exactly what food is there for these locusts? I'm so glad you thought of that excellent question. Um, So the answer is that it says in last week's Torah portion, not all the crops were destroyed. It's the early crops, the, uh, the barley, the, the flax, the linen, that's linen comes from flax plants, those were destroyed because those were really ripe. The wheat and the spelt, those plants were not destroyed. Some say because they're soft, like grass, right? When I walk on my grass in my front yard, so it bends and then it pops back up. So too, the wheat and spelt were still early in their growth, so therefore the hail did not destroy them. Others say it was miraculous, Others put it a little bit in between that there was a long break between the hail and the locusts so that there would be time for stuff to regrow to bring a new plague. Also keep in mind, King David calls locusts God's army. In other words, if we can look at the ten plagues as a, as a king that makes war on another country or another city, which is... Again, one of the fascinating facets of all these plagues, that there's, there's different facets and they fit together like the most unbelievable puzzle. Like, you know, those 3D puzzles and all the pieces fit. It's amazing. So you start out, you attack a country, go after the water supply. Then you start scaring them with noises, even bombs. We've talked about in the past. Part of it is a scare. And then like long range, like arrows or missiles, that's the lice. Then again, not nowadays, but go back into into um, medieval times, and uh, the kings would hire other soldiers. You wouldn't ruin, you wouldn't take a chance on your top soldiers. You hire these mercenaries. That's like the wild animals. Then you start destroying the food supply. That's the plague. Then you start uh, throwing closer missiles with your like the boils. Then you get to the hail. You break down the walls. By this time, you've, I mean, that's the goal, right? By this time, you've so weakened the country you're attacking, your soldiers are just going to march right in, which is exactly what the locusts did. Then you get to the darkness. That's like throwing the leaders in jail. And then you execute the leaders. That's the plague of the firstborn. Okay, so Moses goes into Pharaoh and he warns him. He says, next plague, locusts. 
Moses walks out, and his brother Aaron, by the way, and Pharaoh's servants say, Pharaoh, have you looked out the window recently? Do you have any idea what our country looks like? I mean, this Moses is batting a thousand. He is six, he is seven for seven. So you think the eighth one is not going to happen? We got to do something. So they call Moses back. So Pharaoh says to Moses, he says, who's going? Now, we all know that the goal was to go out to freedom. However, way back when Moses originally spoke to Pharaoh, the original deal on the table was we want to go into the desert for three days to serve God. And then whatever happens, happens. It wasn't like it was an unfinished sentence. So whether it was a one-time deal and the deal's off the table or it was like a white lie to say we're going out, but when I say we're coming back, whatever it was, Pharaoh still assumes the deal's on the table. Okay, that's his problem. So he says to Moses, who's going? So Moses says, everybody's going. Men, women, children, old, young, everybody. So Pharaoh says, no deal. We're not doing that. Because you think about, at least when I studied about the American Indians, but I'm sure it was the culture everywhere. If you were an idol worshiper, the men, the adults, the adult men went out on the hunt or wherever they went. Women and children didn't go celebrate holidays. So Moses is teaching Pharaoh when it comes to a Jewish holiday, when the when the Jewish people celebrate a holiday, and I'm sure nowadays many people have learned from that. I'm sure there's many holidays like this. I'm sure people can correct me or inform me. And children are a focal point of our holidays because if the children are involved in the holiday, we get to teach them what the holiday is about. Passover, we left Egypt. And the Shavuot, we got the Torah. And Hanukkah, we were saved from the Greeks. And Purim, we were saved from Haman. We want our children to be involved. Our children are involved. They understand what the holiday is all about. And they're an integral part of a Jewish holiday. That the Pharaoh had no, he, he didn't understand such a thing. He never heard of such a thing. But Moses was teaching everybody early on, children are an important part of the holiday. We don't push them to the side. We don't ignore them. We don't say, we're going out for the holiday. You stay home, we'll get your babysitter. That's not what a Jewish holiday is all about. But the Pharaoh didn't like that. He said a fascinating verse. He says, I see bad is coming I see bad opposite your faces. Sorry, I needed the Hebrew to jog the memory there. Right? I see bad is opposite your faces. Simple explanation means that uh, you're playing games with me. You're pretending that you're going for a holiday and you're really going to escape. Well, yeah, hello, that's the plan. Moses doesn't say that part. Um, as a, once we're this far into it, there's a very interesting second explanation to that verse See, there's bad opposite your faces. So the commentaries explain these were major astrologers. And Pharaoh said to Moses, Moses, I love you. Come on, I brought you up my house. I can't let you go. You know why? Because my astrology says that this red star, probably Mars, which is a sign of blood, um, this red star is coming up to greet you. It's a sign of killing and blood and dying. If I let you go and march out into this star, towards this star, you'll all get killed. I love you too much to let you all get killed. Better you should stay here. In any case, um, Moses leaves, um, and he waves his, 
his uh, stick, and a wind starts to blow. It blows for uh, for a whole uh, day, a whole night. I'm sorry, blows for a whole night, and the next morning you have this amazing cloud of locusts that covers the whole country. It's a black cloud. So really, the plague of locusts and the plague of darkness, it's dark. And it actually didn't come down that day. Uh, it was Sabbath that day, so I guess the locusts wanted to rest. And But that night they came down. Now farmers know, when you see locusts like floating in the air till they finally land, you know it's all over. So that, that itself is so nerve-wracking, makes a person so frustrated and nervous, like you know the destruction is coming. Just destroy it already. Let's, let's move on with life. So the locusts devour everything. While the locusts are devouring everything, you got no food. So they're actually pickling in barrels as many locusts as they can get their hands on. I tell my kids, I said, yeah, a little, a little olive oil, uh, fry it up, a little salt and pepper, all, all good stuff. Um... In the meanwhile, the Pharaoh comes running to Moses and says, you got to get rid of this death. you got to get rid of this plague. It's got to go. So everybody asks, why does the plague have to go? Like, it's too late now. Now the food is eaten. There's no food you're saving if the locusts leave now. So there's a few interesting answers. Um, One answer is the locusts were eating the roots of the plants. That means there'd be no roots. Um, All the soil would turn to dust. You would have a desert. Your country's ruined. The answer I like... Um, I'm sure a scientist will tell me right or wrong, but when locusts are in a location for a full week, they actually lay eggs. So once they lay eggs, you're toast. It's all over because the plague is here today. Whatever it does to your country today, but by tomorrow, it'll uh, it'll it'll be gone. But if there's eggs, it'll never be gone. And here comes my music. So. Please hold through the break. When we come back, we'll be joined by Rachel Wasserman, Executive Director of Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta. We'll talk human trafficking. Hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzui, and we'll be right back. Maple Lane Golf Club is a 54-hole golfing treasure located in the heart of Sterling Heights. Maple Lane Golf Club offers immaculate greens, a top-flight pro shop, and inexpensive green fees. For convenience, book your tee time online at maplelanegolf.com. Come out and enjoy a great golf experience. Try our nine and dine special, nine holes of golf, and enjoy food and refreshments in the Clubhouse Bistro. That's Maple Lane Golf Club in Sterling Heights. Check us out at maplelanegolf.com. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. It's all right here on NewRadioMedia.com. Surfing the Internet can be good for your brain, especially if you're getting up there in years. UCLA scientists say that the internet searching helps to stimulate your brain function by triggering centers in your brain that control decision-making and complex reasoning. In a study to be published in the American Journal of Geriatric Psychiatry, the researchers say that using the internet to seek out new information might stimulate the brain enough to sustain brain health and your cognitive ability. Before the computer age, the one activity that was linked to an active mind was solving crossword puzzles. 
The fact that even simple tasks like searching the internet might enhance your brain circuitry suggests that our brains are really sensitive to mental exercise and actually continue to learn as we grow older. So using an internet search engine such as Google produces the same brain activities as reading, but it also increases activity in areas of your brain that control decision making and complex reasoning. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And as promised, now that we told everybody a few times that tomorrow, and Rachel, tell me if I got it right, is National Human Trafficking Awareness Day, and we've been discussing about the Jewish people becoming a free nation in this week's story portion, what better time to talk about modern-day slavery with our guest, Rachel Wasserman, Executive Director of the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta. Rachel, how are you today? I am doing great. Thank you. How are you? Great. See, Mike? Uh, sorry. Sound is perfect. We are Beautiful. good. The sound is perfect. Great. So now that we're on, before we, we get involved with human trafficking, could you just take a minute or so and just tell us about yourself? Sure. Absolutely. I am Rachel Wasserman. I live in Atlanta, Georgia now, but I was born and raised on a horse farm in Lexington, Kentucky. Um, I went to school up north and then stayed there for... Uh, about 15 years, and then moved to Atlanta in 2012. And I have four children. I have a degree in social work and Jewish communal service. I'm kind of a nonprofit lifer and am very passionate about women's issues, especially within the Jewish community. And just as an aside, um, I happened to have spoken to Michael Horowitz a couple weeks ago. And I oh, told very him, nice. see, and I said, you're coming on the show. He's sort of in and out of Detroit. He says he'll be back in April. I have no idea. But uh, we go back. I know he was involved. Um, I think he hired you in the Federation before you got involved with the Women's Fund? He did, yes. So Jewish Federation of Greater Atlanta helped to launch the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta. And as we were getting off the ground, Michael was the CEO of the Federation. And so... He hired me and was my first boss um, until he moved on to his next project. Yes, he, he doesn't sit down well. That I know for sure. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he, look, he lived in, in Detroit for a long time. He's very involved in federations and stuff. Okay, great. I, we talked about the weather. How's the weather? It's 25 degrees here. Well, I'll tell you, this morning it was 30 degrees here, so not that much better. Oh, that's terrible. But just because I needed warmth, I actually went to Miami, actually North Miami Beach. I have a, a son there. So uh, we wanted a little warmth for a few days. Nice, 75, 78 degree weather, sit outside on the porch, and now I'm back home with my coat. But in any case, before we get into human trafficking, um, why don't you just tell us a few things? What does the Women's Fund of Atlanta, the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta, what do they actually do? Sure. So the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta promotes social change and creates positive opportunities for Jewish women and girls. So we are engaged in women's issues across the spectrum within the Jewish community. So everything from economic empowerment to violence prevention, leadership development, uh, pay equity, 
issues around uh, gender equality, anything that affects women in the general population affects women in the Jewish community, and that is what we are all about. So we do work locally, but also nationally and internationally. We are grant makers, and uh, we, over the past six years, have granted over $700,000 to different programs and organizations that align with our mission. And so a lot of our work is in Israel. Um, and we also work alongside about 20 other Jewish women's foundations around the country. There is an incredibly successful and um, longstanding one in Detroit. And uh, we work together on a lot of issues and collaborate because we're all really addressing very similar missions. Most of us also do work in Israel um, as well as in our local communities. And so we engage with Jewish women in Atlanta, Jewish women um, who are philanthropists, who are pooling their resources, making decisions together about how to make an impact with their dollars. And so everybody can do so much more together than they could do alone. And so that's really what we're building, a movement of women who care about other women in, in our community. Amazing. 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 So we'll get back to some of that. But first, and we talked about it, but let's, let's uh, the Super Bowl is coming. And you told me that by major um, sporting events, we have issues with human trafficking. And so we'll try to take it in bite-sized pieces. First of all, what is human trafficking? So human trafficking, there, there are several different categories. So um, in general, it's, it's the exploitation of people who are making money for somebody else, and they're not, they're not free to leave, and they're not earning the money themselves. They're not the ones who are ultimately benefiting from the services that they're providing. So there's sex trafficking, where victims are forced um, into prostitution. And then there's also labor trafficking. And so victims have to work for little to no pay. And in that category, you really got kind of across the board from domestic servitude, um, so people working within homes, also janitors, construction workers, um, women in nail salons very often are victims of human trafficking. Um, I don't know if this is the case in Detroit, but I've seen it in Atlanta, and I absolutely saw it when I was in New York for a number of years, where children would come up to you on the train or in a store and they're trying to sell you magazines and they're telling you that they're selling magazines on behalf of their basketball team or their soccer team. Sometimes they're selling candy. Those are actually very often victims of human trafficking. And those children are not actually members of sports teams and they're not actually receiving the money that you're paying them. It's going to traffickers. So it's a billion-dollar industry. It's a wow. very serious issue. And it's really modern-day slavery. And as Jewish people, we know we're supposed to fight against slavery since we were once slaves. Uh, which, is, which happens to be this week's Torah portion because we go to freedom this week in, uh, yes. in this week's Torah portion. So just to, just to clarify for myself, in my mind, the, the, the language of human trafficking, I always imagine, is where they kidnap a child and send the child off to another country. But... That's not what you're talking about, or is it part of Correct. the same thing? That is a myth. So the word trafficking, I think, because of traffic, and we think of, of movement, 
um, that that can be very confusing for people. And I also once thought that, you know, that was what um, I considered to be trafficking. But it's actually about exploitation, not transportation. So uh, most human trafficking is actually taking place within communities um, and not necessarily across borders. So actually in Israel, as an example, since that's where we, as the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta, we started engaging with this work in Israel a couple years ago and now expanding here to Atlanta. But in Israel, um, the way border control has changed over the years is that many uh, victims of human trafficking used to be brought into Israel through the Sinai Peninsula. And then as the border control became um, stricter, and this was not because of trafficking, this was because of other security issues in Israel, um, the human trafficking stopped being actually that issue of transportation, and then it's all been within Israel itself um, happening, you know, not necessarily people coming in. Now the new trend is that um, some of that border security has changed, and now there are actually a lot of women who are being trafficked, again, into Israel. So, um, but it doesn't have to be that, and it's definitely not usually the case where some child is being snatched up. It's mostly um, people being tricked, really. Um, it's vulnerable populations. A lot of times it's children who are in the foster care system, you know, or some kind of protective services, um, or girls who are maybe outcasts in school um, who are really tricked and lured into this type of work as opposed to actually snatched up. Oh, so you're, you're answering, you're just answering one question after the next. Hmm. That's right. Really, the question is, I mean, the first question I, 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 I myself imagine is why this child who somehow was, which I hope you'll explain to us, somehow was grabbed by an adult. Most children at some point would just run away, run back to their parents, we, we we ourselves have programs in school to teach children when they're in a if they're lost in a store in a park who they're allowed to approach how they approach these people we call it safety kids right you look mm -hmm. for like a cashier or something that's wearing the um, the, the whatever the store or something is because they're usually workers there but um, so I have about two minutes and I hope you'll stay through the break so I can get more clarification um, why aren't these children running for help like they they were somewhere. They were in a foster home. Maybe they ran away, but don't they realize they should be running for help? I think that by the time they realize they're running for help, they can no longer run. They're actually being physically kept captive. Certainly girls who are in prostitution run the risk of being killed if they try to escape or if they speak up. It's a very real, real risk. Um, foster care agencies are... Uh, incredibly underfunded, um, and so the social workers can't even keep track of the kids under their care. So each year in Georgia alone, nearly 400 children disappear out of the foster care system, um, and that's wow. just in this state. So by the time people realize that they're in trouble, their papers sometimes have been taken away, they have no money, they have no access, and it's a really actually a physical danger to them to get out. So you know, they've been psychologically, I'll call it, abused to feel that they're no longer in control. So these people are playing mind games and physical games and, uh, and certainly doing horrible things with these children. Um, so many things. I hope you, you'll be able to hold through the break because we're almost up to a break. 
I will be here. Cool, because I would like to know, we've talked a little bit about trafficking, but I think we have to find out what is the the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta doing, especially now with the upcoming Super Bowl. What are people doing? What should we be doing? How can we help? What can we do? I'm joined by Rachel Wasserman. When we come back, we're going to continue talking about human trafficking. You're listening to Rabbi Tzuya on New Radio Media, and we'll be right back. I'm Jackie Cal with Dr. Mark Berkowitz. You all accumulate so many products. They probably dry it yeah. out if I open the jar. You can't miss the team member with Medicare. You're a critical part of the team. Yeah. But I don't eat the yolks. That's not really helping them diet, is it? They're, they're not getting anything out of it. It goes right through. With these relatively small steps, it becomes a lot easier over time to make major lifestyle changes. Put your arms out if you want to. Whoa! Nice. At Murray's Park City, we're known for offering customer service you won't get in any chain store or online. But don't take it from me, just listen to what our customers have to say. The employees at Murray's are knowledgeable, courteous. They make you feel like you're at home. Pick up a can of Seafoam Fuel System Treatment for only $6.99 or a 5-quart container of Mobile One Motor Oil for just $28.95. Murray's Park City and Pontiac Trail at Maple Road in Wald Lake. We've got the parts you need when you need them. A gelling agent used in making jams and jelly may have anti-cancer properties. Now, anyone who's ever made jams or jellies is familiar with the ingredient known as pectin, which is a natural fiber product found in most fruits and vegetables. A group from the Institute of Food Research in the United Kingdom found that under the right conditions, pectin releases a molecular fragment that binds with a protein that inhibits cancer growth. And the thing that may make jam and jelly more effective is slowing the growth of cancer than raw pectin is the process used to modify it for use in jams and jellies. You see, it turns out that the modification helps to emphasize the release of the cancer-fighting fragment, which is known as galactin-3. Now, most commercially available pectin comes from the peel or citrus fruits and apple pulp that is processed before its sale. So for now, no one knows if pectin found in unprocessed fruits and vegetables has the same cancer-fighting qualities. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. Thank you for holding through the break. Rachel, are you still there? I am here. Excellent. Now we got to get to the meat and potatoes. So what is the, is the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta doing now that the Super Bowl is almost upon us for this problem? This, this terrible problem of human trafficking. What are you guys doing? So we are part of a citywide effort that's being led by the International Human Trafficking Institute, which is out of the Center for Civil and Human Rights. And the International Human Trafficking Institute is working collectively with, uh, with companies, with the government, um, of, of Atlanta and Georgia, with um, educational institutions, with nonprofit organizations, and with faith-based organizations to work together to train 50,000 volunteers within Atlanta over the next three years about human trafficking and about um, how to advocate. And so the Super Bowl is being used really as the impetus for this work, but it's not the beginning of it and it's not the end of it. Though we are going to be 
uh, training all of the volunteers that come into Atlanta from around the country, maybe around the world, for the Super Bowl. So next week I'll be going down to, uh, to downtown Atlanta to train Super Bowl volunteers. But really this work is going to be continuing over the next few years so that we can have as many people as possible engaged in these efforts. Atlanta, unfortunately, is um, – Atlanta is – Fortunately, a wonderful city for many reasons, unfortunately, is one of the hotbeds of human trafficking within this country, um, partly because of our airport and uh, the fact that it's a, a major international airport, maybe the biggest one. And so we really have a lot of work to do. Uh-huh. So so what, what, what are you trying to train the volunteers to do? You're not asking them to go rescue children, are you? No, absolutely not. And just to be clear, this is not only an issue for children by any means. Um, But no, because actually if you see a situation where you're concerned that somebody is a victim of human trafficking, it's actually very dangerous for that person if you were to confront them directly because of what I was mentioning earlier about um, the, the... the pimps or, um, you know, whoever is behind the trafficking ring, um, it's, it's actually very dangerous for the victim if, if you went up to them directly. So what we are doing is, first of all, we're educating people, and we are educating people about the fact that human trafficking is a business. And so with any business, there's supply and demand. And it's not enough to address victims. It's, it's actually much more beneficial to address the demand and to try to reduce the demand, um, which which a lot of that work means changing laws. Um, right now, 26% of of buyers who were convicted convicted of sex trafficking, um, so men who were purchasing women for prostitution or other other um, services, didn't even spend one day in jail. These men were convicted, not just accused. So we need to make it very clear. We need to change the laws so that buyers and sellers will be punished as opposed to the victims. And so we're certainly encouraging people to advocate to, to lawmakers, to decision makers, to the criminal justice system um, that, that law enforcement needs to have resources to arrest and to prosecute um, Buyers. And the also, buyers know. The buyers also have to start finding out that it's going to cost them if they're uh, if they're caught. Absolutely, and it it needs to cost them. It needs to cost them money. It needs to cost them freedom. It needs to cost them. You know, there needs to be a real cost associated. And again, this is not. This should not just be about the the sellers. So it shouldn't just be about the people who are actually, um, you know. Uh, perpetrating the the violence and um, enslaving victims of human trafficking. It also needs to be about the people who are willingly and knowingly buying services from trafficked victims. Because if the buyers go away, the demand goes away, the sellers go away, and then the victims go away. And the victims go away, you know, in the most positive sense, meaning that they have freedom. Or, or certainly, um, at least, they're not going to continue to look for more of those victims. Is really a good word. So, okay, so that's one thing you're that you're teaching your, or training your volunteers. That's fifty thousand volunteers. Do you want them walking through streets and neighborhoods to report to the police what they see, or you're really staying away from that? 
Yes, yeah, so it's it's not actually reporting to the police because the police, um, if you call 911, they just in most communities, certainly here, they don't have those resources to go and to address every every uh, incident that's reported. So we are directing people, um, if it's an issue of a child, um, so if somebody has information about a missing child or a suspected child exploitation, we are um, directing them towards missingkids.org. And there's a phone number. I can send you all this information after if you're able to share it on the show notes. And then um, for for other human trafficking situations, we direct people to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Um, and there's a, there's a phone number, um, there's a text number. And so really encouraging people to report the issues. And then those organizations are very well equipped to then work with law enforcement to follow up. Um, so by training these 50,000 people to be on the streets, to be paying attention to what's going on around them, to what's going on in the businesses that, um, that, they, that they utilize from everything from a nail salon to a hair braiding salon to also if you are a business owner, who are the um, janitorial services that you employ? Who are they employing? Who's in your building after hours? and taking care of the place are those people potentially victims. So we're also really encouraging businesses to include anti-human trafficking language in their human resources policies and contract stipulations. So there's really a multi-leveled approach to be able to work on this issue. And if everybody's really tuned into what's going on, they'll be that much more equipped to make a change. Okay, it's amazing stuff. And you'll give us, some again, some of those websites uh, uh, when we finish up, but um, I, I had to ask this question. You really answered it already, but just to clarify it, um, you are a Jewish foundation, and we this are. is more of an um, this is a national project almost. Um, in in what way does does human trafficking fit in with a, a Jewish foundation? Sure, absolutely. That's a that's a wonderful question. So um, because it really is, it's an international crisis. So as I mentioned earlier, we started engaging with this work through um, through our work in Israel, and there's actually been a lot happening in the Knesset recently around um, sex trafficking laws. And in Israel alone, there was a there was a survey in 2016, so very recently, um, a survey on prostitution that found that in Israel there were um, almost 12,000 prostituted people in Israel, and 95% of them were female, and actually most of them are Jewish Israeli mothers over the age of 30 who, are in, who entered into prostitution for financial reasons, because they need to put food on, the, you know, food on the table for their children. And so we started working on this issue in Israel. We continue to work on this issue in Israel. We work with an organization called Atsum, um, which lobbies the Knesset and does a lot of important work around uh, human trafficking. And so it was a natural expansion of that work to take it locally. Um, the, the International Human Trafficking Institute is working with, inter- with uh, faith-based organizations across the board. And it's very important as Jewish people that we stand up against injustice, certainly against slavery. And Jewish people are not immune to this issue. Jewish girls and, and boys, for that matter, are at risk for being victims, and there are Jewish people who are engaging in the purchase 
of, um, of services knowingly and willingly. And so we need to step up. We need to be a light unto the nation and say that this is wrong. There's something that we can do about it. And as, as Jewish people, we, um, you know, we're, we're really mandated to do that. And so um, we see a direct connection with this work, and especially as we continue to engage both here and in Israel, we're really able to take a multi-pronged approach to our efforts. Amazing. I'm so happy you, 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 I mean, the answer is so crystal clear that uh, I am glad that I re-asked you because I, we discussed this, I know most of the answers, but nobody else listening does. Well, maybe some, if there's some of your 50,000 volunteers. But my time is getting close to the end, and I so much appreciate you came to teach us about human trafficking. But why don't you just take a minute, wrap it up. If somebody wants, needs a website to go to, people that are not in Atlanta, that in their own neighborhoods, how they can learn to volunteer, um, what would you like to leave us with? Absolutely. So um, a great uh, resource is the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And their website is humantraffickinghotline.org. They actually have information about every state. So I was looking up Michigan earlier, and certainly Georgia's on there. Um, There are statistics. There are resources. There are ways to get involved. And so no matter where you are, you can have access to that information. Um, January is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And actually tomorrow, uh, the 11th, is Human Trafficking Day. So it is a perfect opportunity to educate yourself and then educate those around you. Tell the people who you know something that you learned today. And the more we spread information and knowledge, the more we all are equipped to change the world. And so I definitely invite all of your listeners to engage with us wherever you are. And if you want to know more about the Jewish Women's Fund of Atlanta, we're at jwfatlanta.org. And as I mentioned earlier, too, there are Jewish women's foundations all around the country. And so no matter where you are, you can also engage in, uh, in addressing women's issues within the Jewish community so that we can all be equal partners in this world. Rachel, I so appreciate that we connected and that we we brought this topic out. Um, I'm hoping lots of people check out the information. Please send me, you have my email, obviously. Please send me the information. I'll put it out onto my social media. Um, And uh, as we say, I wish you a lot of Hatzlacha. Thank you so much. I will send you that information now. And thank you for taking time out of your show to address such an important issue. It was well worth it. Thank you, Rachel, and be well. Thank you. Take care. Bye. Okay. Whoa, good topic. Well, I learn, I love when I learn stuff. I think that's why I know which questions to ask because there's so many things I don't know. <laughs> I just ask what I want to hear about. And I'm hoping that the stuff I want to know will help you. Um, we got about, I don't know, a minute, minute and a half. We'll figure it out. Um, the 10th plague, the plague of the firstborn is the final, as we say, nail in the coffin. I'm sure there's a lot of puns involved in that statement. But the final plague is that Moses warns Pharaoh, every firstborn will die. Now, interesting enough, there was one firstborn, perhaps two, that did not die. And that was Pharaoh himself, because the Pharaoh has to survive to free us. Once the plague takes place, it takes place exactly in the middle of the night. Not midnight, it's the middle of the night, which is you in Detroit. It's in the 125, 130, it depends where you live, what you do. 
once that plague takes place, Pharaoh runs around looking for Moses, doesn't know where he lives. Um, the Talmud says the children sent him every which way to make him crazy. Um, he gets to Moses. He declares the Jewish people are free, but we don't leave. We are busy singing praises to God that he took care of us. We are not leaving till the next morning. Moses says we are not trying to sneak out of the country. We are leaving as a free nation. And we pack up and we load up and we get out so fast as we get into matzah. But I don't have time for that now. When we come back, we'll be joined by Jonas and Goldson. So hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzu on the radio media. We'll be right back. I'll tell you what happened. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. But your your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. What's going on in your neighborhood? They say it takes a village. It's the simple things. The things that are a testament to the old. And the things that are a testament to the new. Know what's going on in your community. Check out our community channel on newradiomedia.com. When it comes to keeping the elderly healthy, the type of treatment offered is a lot more important than the amount of treatment. Researchers at Dartmouth Medical School examined patients from states where Medicare spending is highest with those in states where the spending is the lowest. And surprisingly, there was no indication that the patients in the states with the highest spending were any better off in the states with the lowest spending. In fact, just the opposite was true. One of the authors of the report says it shows the time has come to fundamentally redesign the way we care for the chronically ill and strive instead to reward provider organizations that succeed by reducing excessive care for patients. Now, some of this might be traced to medical errors, says one of the experts. And so it makes sense that people who are hospitalized twice as often will also have twice the risk of suffering from a medical error problem. So it proves once again that in many cases, including healthcare, less can be more. With another prescription for your health, I'm Dr. Jim Bragman. And we're back. And at, we missed him last week, but he is back with us this week. Yainison, how are you today? I am well, Baruch Hashem. How are you, Ritzi? Great. I'm so glad. I know you're busy today. Lots of things happening. I appreciate that you uh, that you were able to make the time for us today. So with the oh, clock, no all right. So with the clock ticking, go for it. All right. Recent study confirms what should be obvious: developing a healthy eating habits diminishes the temptation of unhealthy eating. There's actually more wisdom there than you might think, and the practical applications extend far beyond your diet. In his book Willpower, Roy Baumeister coins the term decision fatigue. The idea is simple: the more choices we have to make the more we exhaust our capacity for making choices, especially difficult ones. With respect to diet, that means that the more habitual healthy eating becomes, the fewer conscious choices we have to make about what we eat. 
That leaves us with greater decision-making reserves to resist that piece of fudge cake when it appears in front of us. A variation of this principle appears in the Torah narrative of the Exodus. When God sends Moses down to Egypt, he says that he intends to harden Pharaoh's heart. But that doesn't actually happen until after the sixth plague. Before that, Pharaoh hardens his own heart, even as he watches the suffering of his people and the devastation of his country. Pharaoh is so absorbed with his own power, his own ego, and his own worldview that he simply cannot summon the inner strength to make the obvious choice to let the Jews go, which is clearly in his own benefit. His moral muscles have atrophied through disuse to the point that he has destroyed his own free will. The scary part is that the same thing can happen to us. If we aren't careful to weigh every choice we make, we can incrementally erode our own moral decision-making capacity. On the other hand, by remaining morally vigilant and evaluating even the smallest choices, we can develop ourselves into moral giants and heroes. That's a powerful message to inspire us as we look forward to a very good Shabbos. Yadison, great message as always. Greatly appreciated, and I hope we speak next week. I hope so. Have a good Shabbos. Have a good Shabbos. Kelsey, you ready for the next poster? Kelsey is ready. We are up to our eighth poster. We are up to the letter either Ches or Chet, depending on where you come from. It is, obviously, it's the eighth letter, therefore its numerical value is eight. Um, I guess it looks like a C that you flipped on its side. Um, you know, it's that box with only uh, missing a bottom. It's got two legs there and a roof on top. In the Torah, it's actually written, it's debatable how it's written, it's actually written as two Zions, the Zion was last week's letter, with a roof on top. Some say above it is Zion with a roof on top. Um, it happens to be one of those letters that Americans have a very hard time pronouncing because it's a ch sound. And if you didn't learn as a younger child to say ch, so you're used to words like chain. So chain is ch, you could say chain. And you'll say chayim, but chayim, uh, those kinds of words become rather difficult. Now again, if you were born in Russia, that's one of the common letters. A lot of their uh, I mean, not a lot, but certainly if you speak to somebody who speaks Russian, that's like a very easy sound to pronounce. But in any case, I had a great word for this week. This week's word is cheirus or cheirut. Again, depending if there's an S or a T sound at the end. Again, depends uh, where you come from. Um, and that word means freedom. So really, a, a perfect letter and a perfect word, the word cheirus, which we ask for our freedom we were freed from slavery in Egypt. We just finished a long conversation with Rachel Wasserman talking about freedom and how important it is to be free and to allow people to be free and not let people be in slavery. So a great word. And as my time is ticking, I found a great story. The story goes like this. Antonio and Mario are sitting and having lunch. They're uh, construction workers are up on the girders, and they both pull out their, their lunch boxes. And uh, Mario says to Antonio, what you got for lunch? Oh, today I have Parmesan and, and eggplant and whatever. And, and uh, Mario says, can't remember what I just said. That's, was that Antonio or Mario? I lost my train of thought. Anyways, Antonio says he has the great lunch. And Mario says, Ugh, I have this soggy tuna fish sandwich. I hate this. Okay, next day, again, uh, Mario asks Antonio what's for lunch. And Antonio says, oh, Today I have a steak sandwich. And Mario says, oh, today I got horrible tuna fish, soggy. It's crazy. Same thing every day. And uh, sure enough, the third day, by the fourth day already, Antonio says, look, 
my friend Mario, I tell my wife what I want for lunch. Why don't you tell your wife what you want for lunch and you'll have a lunch instead of complaining about soggy tuna fish? Mario says to Antonio, he says, I'm not married. I make my own lunch. So you get the point, right? Or if you don't get the point, right, everything is in the hand of heaven, we say, except the choices we make. What are our daily choices? Our choices affect who and what we become, who and what we are. Um, Pharaoh's choices meant that he was going to suffer. The Jewish people's choices meant that they accepted the Torah and they became God's people. Uh, human trafficking is uh, one of the things that Rachel was spending a lot of time telling us, whether it's the buyer or the seller. You're making choices. Don't make the wrong choice because if you make that wrong choice, that wrong choice is certainly going to cost you. And... Uh, one more positive commandment in this week's Torah portion, let's see if I can do it in about 20 seconds, is because the Jewish firstborns were saved. Now, as God killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, not the firstborn of the Jews, it leads to a fascinating law that there's a special holiness on every firstborn. So we redeem our firstborn sons to sort of redeem that holiness. If it's a kosher animal, we give it to the priest, to the Kohen. And if it's a donkey, believe it or not, we actually also have to redeem it. But now I see my time is running out. So thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. I couldn't do without you. Thank you my wonderful production team, Tony, Kelsey. We now have Mike with us, Angel, and I think Zach is hanging out there. I hope I've left you with some food for thought. Until next week, I'm Rabbi Sweet Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah New Radio Media. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.